Welcome to the Human Design Collective Podcast, where we explore this system as a map of our unique potential, from the mundane to the mystical. If you'd like to dive deeper into your design, we invite you to check out our ongoing foundation courses and workshop offerings. We're excited to offer our midlife workshop exploring the Uranus opposition and Chiron return again on September 24th. For more information and to register, please visit courses.humandesigncollective.com. In this episode, we're speaking with Melissa Murray, a 5-1 self-projected projector, analyst, guide, and DDP student on the left angle cross of confrontation. She has a background in education and has been experimenting with human design since 2018, while being deeply immersed in the study of substructure and variable. In this episode, Melissa shares her experience with the self-projected authority and the importance of self-love, timing, and not knowing. We also discuss the quad left variable, parenting, and much more. We hope you enjoy this lively conversation. Well, hello, Melissa. Welcome for being with us today. We're really excited to have you join us on the podcast. Thank you. I really am super excited to be here with you guys. Been listening for a long time, and so oh. it's, it's really a joy to be here. Thank you. We're glad to have you. We've known Melissa for quite a while and have gotten to do courses with you and share in training with you and be study buddies with you and explore all kinds of things, human design. Would you tell us a bit first about how you found human design and what the initial impact was for you? I like to say that human design found me because it just really dropped right in my lap. I had pretty big catastrophe in my life, which I call my first awakening. My husband died unexpectedly in 2011, quit my job, went on a spiritual quest to try to figure out what the hell was going on in my life and in the world. And seven years later, in 2018, I decided to have a Vedic astrologers reading predictive kind of thing, because I was trying to figure out timing wise, different things and what might be the best time for things to happen. And so I had that reading with him and I asked him a question about what I was supposed to be doing with my time <laughs> because I had quit my job and I had been, you know, playing the role of a manifesting generator for years, most of my adult life. So I asked him, what now? What should I be doing with my time? And he said, you might want to look into human design. Huh. I was on a phone call with him. And as soon as I hung up the phone call, I Googled human design and, you know, brought me to Jovian Archive. Luckily, that was the first Google hit. <laughs> Put in my birth information and up pops this body graph, which I knew nothing about. But yet there was a weird familiarity. Like I remember feeling like a physical body sense of relief. I had no idea what I was looking at. That was in January of 2018. And literally from that moment until today, it's just been nonstop studying human design. I love it. Did you go have a reading or did you study on your own? Well, kind of both. I started reading everything, getting the downloads and stuff from Jovian Archive, their free resources and things like that. And then, of course, immediately as a projector, put in all the birth charts of all my kids and my grandkids and my parents, everything. Somewhere along the way, it must have been in a Jovian free resources, I discovered that there was something in human design about eating correctly. 
I'd gone through some pretty physical problems like recently, and I've always been a real healthy individual actually. And so I had gone through some pretty catastrophic things involving my heart. And I had all the cardiologists and all the modern medicine people tell me a specific way I should be eating. And I just knew inside of me that there was something wrong with that. Like what they were telling me wasn't quite right. And so when I found out that human design had something to do with eating, I was like, okay, that really was the hook for me. So yeah, I actually got a foundation reading right away because I did find out that that was the start. But then I went right away to Becky Markley and got my PHS reading. And I was just, again, so relieved. I'm like, okay, this, this also makes a lot more sense than what I've been told for the last 20, 25 years, as far as eating goes. Mm -hmm. That was my real hook. I just started taking classes and learning more and dove in. You did things a bit out of order or in, in an unusual order because you really dove into that substructure piece. I did. Yeah, right away. That's where I met John in class. ABCs and cartography was doing that at the same time that I started DDP because I reached out to the gal at the IHDS and asked her if I could take DDP. And she said, well, you're supposed to have all these things, but I'll ask the instructor. And so she did. And yeah, I was let in. I didn't know anything. Oh my God. Like I knew nothing, but it was still interesting. And did the PHS information land? Was it a confirmation of something you had already been doing or how did that show up for you? Yeah, in a big way it did. I got my reading from Becky. I mean, this is just fascinating. It's really synchronistic because I got my reading from Becky with my birth certificate time. And she told me that I was low sound for my determination. And I started practicing that, you know, experimenting. And it resonated in some way because I was like, I know I don't like high sound things. Like I'll go to concerts and stuff like that. I'm very acoustically sensitive, which can be related to my individuality too now, but I didn't know any of that. So after a few months of really experimenting with the low sound and then being in these other classes where people were talking about birth time rectification, I'm like, what? Well, then I reached out to Becky and she said, yeah, you could get your birth time rectified by this astrologer. Well, the astrologer was the same astrologer that I went to who told me about human design. Prasadnan, he's in Canada. So I went back to him and I said, how do I get this rectified? And when I did, it changed according to the astrology. I was born three minutes later than my birth certificate time. And in that three minutes, it shifted to direct I'm a light person. I am a sun girl. When the sun comes up in the morning, I am out of bed. I always have been, no matter if I went to bed late (laughs) for most of my life. Yes, when I was younger, I might've stayed out and partied a little, but I really never stay up past 10 o'clock at night ever. (laughs) So the time was that close. You were right on the edge of that color change. Yeah. You know, it's also interesting I don't recall there being a lot of talk about this necessarily in the literature or the DDP program, but the five and six share a color binary, right? Sound being five, light being six. We're seeing that elsewhere in other layers, like on the line level, tone level, where there's a relationship between principles, the one and the two, the three and the four and the five and the six. And I wonder if there's still a kind of resonance that happens there on the color level in that binary you know, between sound and light. 
Yeah, that's a really interesting thing to contemplate. I don't know that I've spent a lot of time with that, but you know, five and six, yeah, that's the solar plexus. You look at the software and you click on and it tells you percentages and stuff. I really am close to both of them. The five being almost, it's like at 99%. So I'm almost to the six and the six is almost at zero. So I do feel like there's a both And I was born in June. I'm a Gemini. I have felt like there's like two of me all of my life. Like, yep, there's this part of me and then there's this part of me. So finding this out about my determination, it makes sense to me. It's a good reminder for those who are on the edge or they're working with a determination that doesn't feel quite right or something feels a little bit off to go check it and see how close are you to the other one. It's very important. I just had a client the other day that I was working with and she was really close. And I asked her how sure she was of the accuracy of her birth time. And she said she was pretty sure. I told her what my experience was and she went ahead and did some experimenting for a while. And then something kind of clicked with her too. Like maybe I should get this checked. He gave her a one minute time difference and it changed one minute. And it was low sound on high sound. And she was an eco projector right away. And she knew intuitively, but then she was trying to experiment, which is the invitation. It's such a great verification that it really is about your own experience of the knowledge. And if something inside of yourself is saying something feels off here, it may be worth checking it out before diving in whole hog to follow the system. Always. Knowledge is profound. But nevertheless, it's still knowledge. If you give the power away to that, how is that any different than giving it away to another person? There's no difference. You're still just giving it away. Inside of you is something that's much more sure. It's really interesting to think about that way. We talk about human design as an experiment. And a lot of this has not been fully vetted out in the world. It's relatively new knowledge because it often will land and carry a lot of weight and hits with a certain impact for people. It seems like it's usually enough to where they'll just take the ball and run with it at that point. And then you start believing everything else that you read or that you hear or that you see in the system. But it's all an experiment. And I think we're all out there doing the day-to-day verification of this as part of the larger movement. Yeah, that's right. I was thinking about that in regards to the questions that you sent me. Some of them were like, I don't know, it's an experiment in regards to education. I don't know the answer. I'm 5'1", so maybe eventually I have solutions around things, but it takes a lot of information gathering first line from other people for me to be able to come up with what I would give as a potential solution, Mm. still potential. Like, I don't know. This is your life person, not mine. Sounds kind of like raw. (laughs) (laughs) Another five one. I love to say, I don't know. I mean, I have a completely open Ajna. I really don't know from moment to moment to moment until I do know. And then I usually know pretty rock solidly for myself and I can share that. But more and more, I'm really cautious about this authoritative voice that I have because people just hear it and they're like, whoa, well, dial it back because I really don't know. (laughs) You don't know from the mind. You're not going to know from a conceptual awareness, but do you know from yourself, from your inner authority, your G-Center? Absolutely. And I know for myself from my inner authority. The thing is, is my inner authority connected to this really 
vocal authoritative voice comes across to people like that's the authority. That's where I'm just like, wait a minute, I'm telling you my experience. This is what it's looked like for me. I'm still going to invite you to experiment because you're a different human. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Such a responsible way to have a first line. It really is so authoritative. I have the same issue. I can relate. And if something does come out of me from a place of knowing, it's going to sound like it's the word. The word of God. It is the truth. She has spoken. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And I have to remember that too. So always say, don't believe me. Here's what I know from my awareness, my experience. You better go find out for yourself. One of the greatest attitudes that Ra had was, don't make me responsible for your life. I'm not here to live your life. I give you my truth. I give you a map. You go find your own truth. I've used this analogy a lot with clients. This is fifth line stuff, right? I'm all about finding a solution and come to me. It's crisis time. Let's look at this and let's do it. But I want to kick that baby bird out of the nest. Now you go fly. I can't fly for you. We can learn some things together and I might be able to give a solution here or there or whatever, but you still got to have your own wings. I'm not going to follow you around. Not on me. That's on you. You have guilt motivation, right? I do. I can just relate to the vibe. For some reason, what clicked for me was being a fifth line, having that projection field to deal with, having the guilt motivation, which is so much about where does the responsibility lie, having a design that has no consistent motors. Maybe if I had some more consistent energy, some part of me would try to carry it for somebody else. But I inherently know I cannot. I will fail. I don't know if you see it that way. I do. And I'm happy to say that I inherently know that now. I've carried a lot. I mean, I'm a mom too. And carry as long as you can until something happens and you just can't. So you mentioned that first wake up call. Was there another? I think human design. We know that our lives work in these seven-year cycles, and it was seven years after my husband died in 2011, human design 2018. I didn't know human design from 2011 till 2017. There was a big time shift in my world at that time. I just woke up out of the fog illusion of trying to pretend to be a manifesting generator. It was just like over pretty quickly right after 2011. So what did it mean to you to discover that you were a projector? How did that shift your relationship to yourself? It just made so much sense. Probably the most profound thing about the projector aura, how it mechanically works, and how it's the seeing. It's the awareness. And I remember talking to people throughout my life, saying things like, well, can't you see that? look at that over there. What's going on? And people would be like, huh? What do you mean? Of course, I'm survival view too, like you, John. And that's what I see. And I've kind of always seen it, right? (laughs) Probably since I was born. Mm -hmm. When I found out that there was this mechanical thing about being a projector and our awareness that is different. I don't know what it's like to be a generator or a manifester or reflector. But I imagine that projector awareness is projector awareness. And then in amongst that, all the nuances that come with being a unique human. But I think at the surface level, projector awareness is different than other type awarenesses. I think that's true because of the quality of the 
aura, not quality like better or worse, nature, how it interacts with people, different way of sharing awareness. And just having the mechanics to describe this physical feeling that I've always had about people's availability. I can be standing in the presence of someone and know that they're not there. Talking, 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 and you're just not here. You're looking at me, but you're not available. To me, I attribute it to this shutdown sacral often. I can feel that. I think it's the first line and really getting to the foundation of the why. What is that energetic feeling that I have? And now I have the system that helps me explain it. It's profound. Sounds like you're 1020 also. Mm, Tell me more. There's something about that channel to me that feels so sensitive to presence and awakeness here and now. And that could be in the self, but I would imagine it's also a deep sensitivity in the other. Are you actually here right now or not? Yeah, that's great, Amy. Thanks for sharing that. I love it. My 1020 is an interesting channel. It's interesting to look at on the body graph. It has like this edge. It's like a tongue. It's the only channel in the entire body graph. Sharp little mouth. (laughs) Yes. I think there's also something in what you're saying, Melissa, that is along the lines of the aura of a projector. This is something that we will often say in class, Amy and I, when we were teaching or even in sessions where we tend to take our definition and what we are for granted. We assume like this is the way it is for me. So I would assume it's like that for other people, but that's not really a solid assumption to make. It's actually not a valid assumption at all. When we look at the big picture, the way you're describing the projector awareness of seeing and tracking availability, you can feel it almost. They're not available. I kind of put that under the heading of just paying attention and reading the room, which I assume that we're all doing. Right. (laughs) That's a projector assumption, but other people may be very much involved in their own process or what they're doing. And that's the priority. The priority for a generator is how are they using their energy? What are they doing with their energy for themselves? Brings up this interesting thing that we have between projectors and generators, between that other focused awareness and the self-focused awareness. Mm -hmm. I find it really interesting though, sitting with the two of you as a mental projector, that the two of you are two projectors that in my life have such a strong sense of self. You, Melissa, having the G center as the authority. And for you, John, as the ego projector, having that really strong connection between the ego and the G center. I feel like it must be so interesting for you both to have this other focused reading the room, penetrating awareness, but to also have this pretty strong, consistent sense of self. Yeah, I agree with you. You mean that I like that, I don't like that? Me, not me. For me, not for me. Do you relate to that? I totally get that. You'd sent me that. There was old information, old cartography or something, and it talks about self-authority. What did it say? Something like a projector with a twist or something. And now that you're saying this about the ego projector too, I can see what you're saying. Are we focused on other people? Of course, we're projectors. My focus will be on the other if the other's in the room, but it's still on myself. I'm listening for myself in these conversations. It's kind of me and the other. It's both. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that's true for you too with the ego projected. Yeah, that's the way it feels for me as well. It's like self-referential. It's always in reference to myself, what I'm looking at. That's definition. If you have a defined G-center, it's going to be running in the background all the time. You have a way of describing that now, like that's developed for you, having that self-projected authority? 
I really like myself. This self that I am, I'm so happy. I'm happy that I have the design that I have. I don't look at anyone else as being like, oh, that would be horrible. I can't imagine that. And so I like being me and I like to be able to also see the other, to have an awareness of how the mechanics work on this planet, to see the beauty in everybody. I'm not like that. And they're not like me. On some level, I don't think I've ever wanted to be like someone else. I mean, I go, whoa, that might be cool to have that car or something, you know, (laughs) but like to look at another person. In fact, I remember saying after I've had these traumas in my life and done some counseling work and stuff. And I always said, if you sat 10, 15, 100 people around a campfire and everybody threw their shit in the pile and then they go, okay, well, you go pick out somebody else's shit instead of yours. I wouldn't. Most people I don't think would. Like we all carry whatever we carry, at least from my perspective. I just wouldn't redo anything and hope that I had a different experience being a different person. I got through it all. What you're saying seems to carry the frequency of your definition. To not be you would be to not love yourself, to not be yourself, to not let your behavior express what you are. And the 8-1 as well, I think, carries that similar frequency. And that becomes the point of reference that we're talking about as the G or self-projected authority to operate from that. It's good to be me. I do love myself. So (laughs) based on that, this is correct for me or not. Yeah, exactly. I feel fortunate. Like there's a level of gratitude and acceptance. I just think that there is magic in the universe. And if we just get it the fuck out of our own way and just let it happen, like just retelling my story about how human design found me, you can't make that shit up. Like you just can't. I love it. I think it's magic. This question of magic. The other day I was in a spiritual community meetup in the area There was a topic of discussion that came up around magic, what magic is or how magic appears in our life. And when I was listening to everyone talk, the way it presented to me was that magic is a kind of opening. Magic happens when there's a stop, there's a pause, and there's an opening into something else, maybe a different way of being, a different way of seeing, a different experience. I think that's available all the time in our world. We have to look around and say, oh, this is magical or that's magical. And yet I feel like the magic is always there in a certain space for us. I agree with that. We just need to get out of our own way and be open because something's there. Mm -hmm. Something's always there. And then we get to decide with our authority whether or not that would be the direction to go or whatever the offering is. Yeah, I agree with you, John. Like you say, take the pause long enough to have an awareness that there's something available. Mm -hmm. If we're just like turning the crank, which I did for years and years and years, head down, turning, 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 being on the hamster wheel, I think I missed a lot. Because there's no seeing in that moment. We're missing a lot because we're on the hamster wheel. Or not. That's the other piece. If I go back and I think how, according to the mechanics of human design, I always think about an overhead projector, you know, (laughs) like you go back, you take human design as a system and you just plant it over different periods of your life. It's probably still mostly correct, right? Even without us knowing. My colleague and friend, Chris, she always says, you know, our design does us, not the other way around. 
And I think it is. Yes, we are not self percentage of the time. The percentage might be 100% or it might be 50% or one day it's 80%. I don't know. But I still think that there is a larger program, which we know, a program that is helping us. I mean, it kind of can get a bad rap some ways if we're not awake to it. If we don't have our head out of the illusion. We are just robots. Mm -hmm. But I think it's here to help us Mm -hmm. evolve consciousness. I think most of what we learn in human design, even in regards to strategy and authority and these things that are about decision-making, supposedly, that most of it is really kind of mind training. And a lot of it is about what you're saying, that it may not actually alter much of what happens in our lives, but it could dramatically alter how much we suffer with it. We embrace it and enjoy it, how much we get to see while the same things are happening. It's really fascinating. I think that analogy that Rob brought in about passenger consciousness, just to really think about that what it would be like to be a consciousness that's in the backseat of a car that's driving itself, that has its own direction. And you're staring at the floor, cursing the driver and imagining all the other cars you could be in and all the other places you could be going versus sitting back and looking out the window, seeing what's there. It's the same car. It's the same path. It's the same driver. It's the same vehicle, but our experience can be really dramatically different. Absolutely. And I do think that's how my life got just like split in half because the first part was that. I mean, I was sitting in the back seat, still in the back seat, staring at the floor, being pissed (laughs) off at this, that, or the other, you know? (laughs) That's kind of how it goes. I remember reading, it must have been something like the Celestine Prophecy or something back in the 90s when I was like a student in college. I remember reading some little section of it that was about this poor me. It was Mm -hmm. kind of talking about what life feels like if we walk around with that attitude in ourselves, like poor me, poor me this, poor me that. There was something that really hit me about that, that I think points toward what you're saying, which is my favorite thing to experience with people when they seem to sort of wake up from the poor me to, I like me, me Mm -hmm. is cool. I'm glad I have what I have. It's cool that other people have what they have. Exactly. And I'm really glad I have what I have. Maybe a lot of those things that I've been through have given me what I have. Human design would say we're a personality crystal that got a form. We got a body. Not every crystal gets a body. Lucky me, right? Not poor me. Lucky me. (laughs) So let's see what this ride's about. This is our current ride. Exactly. It's fun. I mean, might as well have a fun, you know, buckle up. But in human design, the knowledge shows us this like limo or something, you know. I think it's probably more like the car on the roller coaster. You're not the driver of the roller coaster. It's still on the roller coaster. Parts of it are a bit like that. Well, I think this may be especially apt for you because I remember so clearly one of the first times that I talked with you, I remember you referring to your undefined solar plexus as a pincushion. You're a five one on the cross of confrontation. So I'm curious about how you might articulate what that experience is like to have an undefined solar plexus, but to have all of these activations and have them be such a big part of your cross. Yeah, I remember in one of my readings with Becky, I was disputing human design, which is what you do when you're experimenting, you know, and I'm like, what is this left angle cross of confrontation? I don't avoid confrontation and truth, like confronting her. Like you tell me what this whole like avoiding confrontation and truth is. 
this little triangle over here on this part of the body graph. And she goes, well, could you say that you confront what needs to be confronted? You don't confront everything. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's true. (laughs) Yeah. Because I can get lit up pretty quickly. I mean, I have five of the seven gates in the solar plexus just waiting to be activated. (laughs) Our friend Blossom, she ran something for me. I can't remember what it was, but it was like 82 years of the solar returns. She did like 82 years of solar returns. And my solar plexus is rarely not active. Like it's super rare. Knowing that... Maybe 50 years ago also might have been a little bit helpful. I mean, I cried my way through second, third, and fourth grade. And now I'm taking my body graph and putting them back on different points of my life like that. And I look at my solar plexus now almost like it's a washing machine, right? All the feeling and the feelers, they're out there and they're just asking to be cleaned up. As a little kid, I'm in the classroom crying for everybody who's not crying and not really wanting to be in school. I didn't even know. I just thought it was me, you know, pretty much know that it wasn't just me. So that's the roller coaster ride. That's my trip, not necessarily anybody else's. It's almost like we have to remember that we're all here for this crazy amusement park that we're all going round and round on and to try to have some fun while we're at it. Exactly. Yeah. I jumped on the roller coaster. My personality crystal came flying on down and said, yeah, Buckle up, buttercup. Here we go. (laughs) I know you've been really deep in study with variable and you mentioned being quad left. And there's a lot of talk out in human design communities about variable now, much more than there ever used to be. Can you share some of what your experiences of that or what you've learned about that in the process of exploring variable being quad left? We mentioned magic, and I really think the variable grid is such a beautiful, beautiful, magical, deep representation of humanity. And studying it through all of the different routes that I have, I'm a puzzle piece, just like other quad left people. We have that similarity. It's, quote unquote, the old way. Many of us know we're moving to the right, And so there's quad left, quad right, opposite. I can see the truth to that. I mean, I am a very strategic person, very focused. And I mean, I can keep my head down and do whatever it is that I'm focused on for long periods of time until it's done. And then the next thing, and that's just how I work. And I work really well, like I'm really good at that. And then in my observation of people who have mixed variables, like the two of you, John, you've got a right arrow and Amy, you got a couple of them. Just the difference is really, really profound. And the beauty in the difference is even more profound because we need both. It's just so important. You guys have worked with Donna and she just shed some lights on things on the rightness because she's got some rightness as well. And so when I think about how the right has these just unbelievable gifts of receptivity and passivity and like a sponge, just bringing all the things in, but they don't even know what they know until someone asks, well, who's the someone that's going to ask? Maybe another right person. Certainly, I'm not discounting that. The right and the left really, really need each other. And I think the closer and closer and closer that we get to 2027, the more important left is going to become. 
So yeah, you know, maybe we're in the old, maybe it's old, but maybe the strategic old is going to be really important for a period of time. Rod didn't say, as far as I know, I mean, he didn't give us any definitive, whatever, June of 2030, boom, no more left. I mean, it's ridiculous. We have no idea. We really have no idea. So when we say old, yeah, maybe you can look back in time and come up with a explanation to how we are now in these humans in transitus with the right and the left. But we really still don't know how much longer we're going to be humans in transitus. It's a while. Mm-hmm. So I'm not ready to be kicked to the curb. <laughs> it will at least be as long as all of us are on the planet, all of these in transitus nine centered humans. And I'm glad you're bringing it up and speaking to it this way, because I feel like There's a lot of different opinions, a lot of different voices out in the human design community. And sometimes you'll run across people who are putting up some aspect of their design, like variable or whatever, as kind of a badge of honor, or this makes me better than you, basically. And what you're saying, though, is that we all have a place. We're a puzzle piece in this larger matrix that we're all in for however long we don't know. It's theoretical on a certain level. Like you said, I believe that the right will need the left and the left will need the right in lots of different ways. And in the same way that we have the cross of planning going away and the 4037, the channel of community, does that mean that we have no need for community now after 2027? No, of course, we're going to need community. We're going to need communion. We're going to need family. We're going to need agreements within whatever our personal spaces are. Certainly the collective's changing. Certainly there's a larger evolutionary trajectory happening that Ra was speaking to. We kind of lose the force for the trees in some of these yeah. you know, the ways we talk about this. Yeah, I appreciate you articulating it that way too, John, because to me, it's using the knowledge as dogma. It's like, well, this is the way it is. I mean, I go back to the experiment and I actually have a beautiful experiment that I get to watch often with my grandsons. They're both five. My daughter had a son and my son had a son. And so I have a quad left and a quad right, and they are one month apart. And watching them in action has been, there's the word, magical. Like it is magical. Can I tell you a story about Easter? Mm -hmm. Yes, please. (laughs) So Easter a year ago, Remington is my quad left mental projector grandson and Paxton quad right triple split generator. And my son hid the Easter eggs out in the yard, you know, and they were going to go out and find the Easter eggs. We were all ready to go out there with them. And Paxton, of course, runs outside and he is like already picking up Easter eggs. And his mom is like, Paxton, slow down. Remington's not even out here yet. You got to wait for Remington and Remington's coming along and he's got his bag and he's got his rain boots on. It's not raining, but he's like, whatever, he's just coming along and he gets out there and he starts watching and scanning and he goes over there, Paxton, there's one up on the slide. And I mean, he was guiding Paxton to the Easter eggs and Paxton was filling his basket with all of these Easter eggs and Remington got a few. He did. And then they sat down and they split the Easter eggs. My whole body was so happy. Like I was just so happy to be witness of something like that. These two tiny little humans who get it. (laughs) (laughs) Guess what? We didn't have to teach them anything. 
In fact, where we're unteaching, and I'm not throwing my daughter-in-law under the bus, but she's like, Paxton, you got to wait for Remington. He wants to do this. Well, maybe Remington just wanted to tell Paxton, because my daughter also has this yard where it's like a two-story yard. <laughs> you know what I mean? So some of the eggs were here, but some of them are way up there. And Remington was like, go up there and get that egg. <laughs> I was so happy to experience that. I mean, I'm on the closer to the end part of my life, but my grandson Remington isn't. And there's going to be more quad left little humans born on this planet for many, 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 many more years. And we are not extinct people out there listening community. Do not even let that cross your mind because you're going to probably meet one of us someday. <laughs> not dead yet. <laughs> That's right. Not dead yet. I think your point is so well taken which is that there's so much already there that we've all already been endowed with, that we've come in with. Really all it needs is to not be overly interfered with or thwarted. It already has its own intelligence. So as far as education goes, whether we're talking about children or whether we're talking about human design, there's something there for us to learn about doing less in a lot of ways, supporting and recognizing what's already there, what's already good, what's already intelligent, what's already natural, and then let it be what it is. And how amazing that we don't have to have a competition about this one's better than that one. It could be put them together, whole is greater than the sum of its parts. I mean, I was a school teacher. And I mean, I've been a teacher in some form or another most of my life. And I remember a coach, I mean, I coached little kids, soccer and all the things. And I just remember thinking and watching as a projector, how often adults get in the way of kids just playing. And I think life can be playing. It really can. If we're sitting in the back seat and watching and maybe get out of the back seat every once in a while and play a little and experiment. But instead, what has happened, and to no fault of anyone, conditioning happens. We know that. It exists. We're never going to get away from any sort of conditioning. But it's the awareness piece of the conditioning. And just stop, pause, John, just stop and see the magic of what's okay. Just drive by the playground. Don't go and watch and organize all the kids because if you just drive by and you watch, those kids will be okay. They know what they're doing. And yes, there's going to be all the little nuances there too, but we're smart humans when we come out of the womb. It sounds like great advice from someone who has been on the planet for a while, parented some children who are now adults and gotten to see them move into that role of being parents. And I'm sure you've probably seen in the process, there's so many parents who get so overwhelmed with all of the information and all the advice and all of the trying to figure out how to help their kids thrive or be okay in the world. And it's interesting, I think, for you to have this message where you're like, hey, relax a little bit and they're okay. Watch and you'll find out in what way are they okay. Drive by the playground. Don't get in there. I love that analogy. It's so great. Because you can imagine getting on a playground and be like, why is this one playing with this? And that one's playing with that. And you should play with this thing that way. And they should play with this other. It's like, wow, we make it so complicated. But I'm thinking about some of the questions we get sometimes from people who have young kids and especially people who are just learning about human design. And so they're learning about type and strategy and authority and eating style and variable and profile. And I think it could be easy for people to get very overwhelmed trying to figure out how to synthesize all that information and do the right thing for their children. 
So this may be a big question to ask, and you kind of already said it. I think in a certain way, people are kind of asking, how do I apply this to my kid or to my parenting? Do you have any guidance or advice about that from what you've seen? Well, when you just asked that, Amy, what popped in my awareness was what I said before about like this whole overhead projector thing. Remember the old like (laughs) film? We may have to explain that to everybody. (laughs) But I think about that because, okay, so if you have the body graph of your child and yourself or whatever, so you've got this body graph and you know that they're a, a certain profile and a type and you have some general information about them. If the projector, this device, I'm not using it in human design terms, but you put this overhead sheet of paper over their life, the life is this machine. (laughs) So now you know that this thing is applicable to this body, this machine that is moving in the world. Just watch and the light that reflects up there is their process. Yes, we have types. Okay. It's a generalization of a type. It's applicable. And from my experiment, it's true. Then beyond that is there's a profile and there's a prickly solar plexus or not. There's all these little details. The child will show you who they are if you watch. Like John, as a child, did you want to just kind of stay in your room sometimes? Yeah. I mean, you're second line hermit and you were also popular with the kids. Like they also wanted to be John's friend. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You've kind of got a classic introvert, extrovert dynamic going on there. Exactly. And so a parent who doesn't know anything about human design, don't try to make John's forced line be his personality. I mean, he's going to do it. He's going to have friends. Don't worry about the fact that he just wants to sit in his room sometimes or wherever you said. I don't know. Maybe it's a treehouse or something. <laughs> but I think we just often... As parents, and I am including myself in this because I was as homogenized as you could possibly be as well. There's all kinds of books written about it. And I think about that. I just think about the books. And if we were to look up the author's body graph of the book that they're saying, Dr. Spock, for instance, it would be really curious, wouldn't it? He's speaking his design. Well, is that for every parent? No. Again, so attached to another authority, human design can be made to be. We swallow it hook, line, and sinker without watching, without paying attention to these little ones in our life and how they are naturally doing their design, doing them. They are a hermit opportunist, a heretical investigator. I mean, they just are. Just watch it. Use it as an overlay, if that makes sense. Something you're saying really resonates with me. I often think of type of non-interference. I'd like to have my own experience and be in charge of my own life and extend that to other people as well. I wonder if it's kind of a decenter thing in a way. It never really occurred to me, but if you have a defined, consistent sense of self that you're here to operate with, then there's this implication or assumption that I've got myself, you've got yourself. Everyone's got a self, but not everyone has that consistent identity and way of showing up across all time and space, whether it's defined or not. I've always looked at parenting and I would say also education. You could say differentiated parenting, differentiated education as being really more a process of not interfering, but supporting. I'm available if you need something to support you finding your own process here figuring out what it means to be you or you following your own strategy and authority rather than what I see going on a lot with a lot of, you would say, conventional education or conventional parenting 
which is kind of ridiculous because we have adults that can barely take care of themselves and manage their own life. They're coming from a mental place of assuming that they know what's best for someone else. When if you were to look at the reality of their own life, it's questionable, right? And so it's a funny situation that we're in or we've been in. What's coming across and what you're saying for me is step back. Don't just jump in there, watch, see how the kids are playing, Mm -hmm. let them work it out. And if something happens, yes, you can be available. You can come there and pick someone back up or get them going again. But it's a different way of doing things than how would you call it? Like just being too hands-on or too in the mix or... Helicopter parenting is the term that I've heard, you know, lots of just hovering around and... What it feels like to me is just this nervousness that something bad's going to happen. And it might, you know, that's the thing. I think we get so caught up in whatever the the perfection of the box, like it needs to fit in this box. And it's such a disservice to the creativity of humans to do that, to stick us all in a box. Yeah, it's killing us, I think, Mm -hmm. killing our spirits, at least sometimes our physical bodies, too. Yeah, I think it's an incredible vanity that we have as as humans to assume that we know what's right for someone else, even our own children, really. I kind of think about like, you know, how we have like the black and the red, you know, we've got the conscious Mm -hmm. and unconscious in the in the chart. And our body takes care of certain biological processes, like our heart beats, our blood circulates, we have a certain way of breathing. If we came at our own body from that same point of view of the mind knowing what's best for our biology, physiology, like meaning like I start controlling how my blood circulates or my heart, right? Right. my lungs work. (laughs) That's not going to work out very well, but that's what we're doing to each other. We're doing the same thing. We're saying, I know better than you from a mind place of what you should be doing with your body. And we can't even do that for our own bodies. It's insanity. And for me, I mean, I have some pretty prominent tribal activations in my design. And so I do have this sense, this tribal circuitry that really is about keeping people together and behaving the same. We're a tribe. This is how we behave. In fact, it's one of the things that I told my children, which I only learned when they grew up how scared they were of this. But I would just say, to them. What you did was inappropriate behavior, which of course comes right out of my design. I would say inappropriate behavior. It doesn't mean I'm talking like you are a bad person, but what you did caused this and this. So I was, you know, trying to connect dots. My kids are like, oh my God, we were so afraid of inappropriate behavior. (laughs) And the reality is, why would I say that? Because I have the behavior of self out of a rock solid G center. And so did I project and have expectations on my children around the way they behaved. Yeah. And if I could go back in time with this new view of how things work, I would probably do some things differently. There is a concern that I have when I'm listening to people out in the human design community of just making it another outer authority that they're listening to. And that's a concern because that's not doing any of us any favors. The ones that are trying to really experiment, legitimately experiment. I always have this inclination to recognize. We were talking in our last spotlight about being a projector and about guidance. And what is it about? 
And the more I've been looking at it lately, I really feel like 90% of guidance is just recognition. I agree. It's not about giving advice. It's not about telling people what to do. It's just about the simple act of recognizing human being. And when you see that, it's such a gift, the receiving end. And what do most adults who are still dealing with their inner child wrestling with? For most of us, if you really dig deep into it, the bottom line is, I wasn't seen. I wasn't recognized for who I am. That's my big core wound. So recognition is often enough. That's plenty. It's a lot. It's really huge. Unadulterated, Mm -hmm. non-agendered recognition. And that, I think, will nurture and feed people so much. It's so much simpler than loading people up with a bunch of stuff. Yeah, it's interesting, Amy. I just had a conversation about this with a friend. He's curious about human design. He was told he was a projector, 4-6 projector, and he's older than I am. So it's a generational thing too. And it's like, well, what do you mean I have to wait for an invitation? It's kind of like hung up on that. And so we had a big, long conversation about what you just described. He said, you know, we get invitations all the time. We do. I mean, they're for this, that, or the other. There's invitations. But for me, for at least the biggies, real recognition, there doesn't even have to be an invitation. Like the real recognition in every cell of my body feels like success. (laughs) Like I was seen, heard, acknowledged for me, not like, oh, I really like that dress you're wearing today. Okay. Yeah. You recognize my dress. That's not recognition. We all know that everybody knows that, but there's this glamour stuff that is happening. Like I'm just going to recognize somebody for whatever the glamorous thing that I see. Well, I want me to be seen. What is different about me that you see different? That's recognition. It's a whole different animal. I mean, everyone wants that. There's a lot of projected channels in the body graph. So everybody would like to be seen. I think most people are really fed by that. I studied this psychotherapy modality called Hakomi, and they had this technique, which they called making contact. And what I realized after learning human design, that what they were calling making contact was really just verbalizing recognition. So the way you would make contact was to name when you see something that's actually happening for the other person. Like, oh, you really like doing that, huh? And you don't say it as like a statement. You almost state it as a recognition and a bit of a question. Like, oh, you're really enjoying yourself right now, huh? To do that with children, I think, is something that can be so empowering for them. It's like, yeah, I am enjoying this right now. Cool. Yeah, that's great. Oh, that kind of hurt your feelings, huh? It did. That will often make a person feel seen. It'll make contact with something in themselves that then they get more connection with. It's validating. Absolutely validating. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's great. Well, I think we solved all the problems of the universe. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody's good, right? Recognition is a big piece. I do have to say, I mean, it took me years into human design to really parse that out. And that's why when I was talking to Steve yesterday, I was like, well, what I discovered in my experimenting around invitation was that it's really about recognition. It's key. It really is. I think there's something exciting and important when a projector is coming into human design and they really struggle with the invitation or they take issue with it. 
to me, that's an opening for something to happen. It's like, oh, you don't like that part of it. Interesting. And then it's like, okay, cool. There's some traction here. It's not about forcing it. It's not about being heavy handed, but you could even recognize that moment and say, ah, you're not really comfortable with this idea of the invitation. Yeah, that's true. Just be with that. Sit with that. Mm -hmm. You know, if the person understands enough of what are we actually talking about, we have enough of a framework in place, then that opens up, I think, a type of watching. Then initiate, go for it, get out there. That's right. Keep doing experiment. But in the back of your head, now you have this thing that you've heard or seen that's saying like, maybe you should wait. And then that takes us somewhere. We get to see something. It's actually kind of a cool moment if they'll stay with it long enough to actually verify it and Mm -hmm. to play with it. And I love what you just said too, John, around the back of their mind. It's not going to ever go away. I remember years ago, way before human design, I remember talking to my friend, we were running partners and I was talking to my friend. I'm like, have you ever really thought that you can't unknow what you know? You just can't unknow it. So that's the thing. And it's like, it's going to just sit back there and whatever the timing is, which really has nothing to do as much as we think it does with our ability to control the timing. No, it'll come back and it'll be like, oh yeah, there it is. I probably should have waited for an invitation instead of trying to just blow my way through that circumstance that backfired on me. Oh, that must've been what John and Amy were talking about. (laughs) (laughs) I had this thing come up recently, going back to the early years when I was just getting into design and I was very enthusiastic. It's kind of like you find something new and you got to go tell everyone about it. I think we all have (laughs) some version of that. And then you're this annoying projector that sees something and I've got to act on it and I'm going to tell you about it. I was talking to someone that didn't really know very well. And I just knew this person was a projector. I just had a very strong sense. And I had a strong sense too, that this person needs to have access to this information and I'm going to be the one to deliver it. I ended up laying it all out there and like, okay, there's this thing, human design. And I think you're a projector. And if you give me your birthday, we can verify that. And sure enough, she was a projector and it just went flat. It just didn't go anywhere. The person was not ready to hear it. It just wasn't time. That's not what was going on. I was interfering. I was coming in and poking the nosy projector thing. Five years passed and this person reaches out out of the blue and is like, hey, (laughs) what were you saying five years ago? And basically like, I'm ready now. I am all ears. This has been coming up and I don't know, you popped in my head and now I want to hear what you have to say. It was kind of cool. I mean, it was cool on a lot of different levels. One, looking back at that version of myself or that way of behaving or of operating, but then it kind of validated my awareness on a certain level. Like, yes, this is a thing, but the timing is the timing. And it's like this for a lot of people in human design is like you're saying, you can't really unsee it. And Mm -hmm. it's not really our job, nor is it really appropriate for us to force something like human design on someone else, because we don't know what they're going to do. We don't know what they're going to get. We don't know what's going to happen in their life. And if we don't want to be responsible for it, then maybe we should stand back and not interfere. (laughs) You know what I mean? I mean, we know what it's like. It gets intense. Yes. But at the same time, isn't it interesting? I mean, to me, that's an interesting story to think about you as a projector with the channel of initiation, with the 51, the wake up and shock, which is often like a time bomb. And here you initiate with a fellow projector and you drop the seed. It doesn't take in the moment. There isn't this big reaction to it, but it sounds to me like that was probably your will. 
it could have been not just being a nosy projector. It yeah. could have been also your will moved you to drop this thing. And in the moment you could have said, oh, I should never have done that. I need to learn better. Human design says I need to wait for an invitation or did it. You can trip out on all of that stuff. But then like you were saying earlier, Melissa, we don't know. I mean, we kind of know, but we don't really know. And then who would have thought five years later, that seed that you dropped, it's time came. And then it was yeah. like, hey, thank you. You initiated something yeah. which is correct for you to a certain extent. Yeah. I agree with you, Amy. I was going to ask you guys though. And in that case, John, if you can think back, yes, you were talking about being early in the process and enthusiastic and all that stuff. I mean, I was trying to shout out from the rooftops to everybody in the world. There's this thing called human design. My question was going to be, have you guys found as you decondition, the more you decondition, the more sensitive your system, your body is becoming around that, like initiating. My question for you specifically then, John, is given where you are today in your process, you might approach that same kind of situation differently than you did then. And would you be more sensitive to the fact of not initiating and not being a manifester and that sort of thing, but also more sensitive to her receptivity in that moment? Because maybe she was receptive and I mean, she got it. Yeah, I would like to think that I would be perhaps a little bit more cautious or hesitant to hold back a little bit. I love the question, is anyone asking? It's a great question for us as projectors. <laughs> if, yeah. if no one's asking, then what are we doing? I would like to think, yeah, maybe I would handle that a little bit differently. But I can look back and remember that there was a sense of, there was a feeling inside. There was a feeling or an experience of, I don't know what this is, but I just feel like this person needs this information. Is that my authority? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But over time, I can say that I've learned to observe, watch, and ultimately trust that feeling. If I have that read on it, if it's clear. And if it comes up again and I get a feeling like that, I think I would be more hesitant and more cautious about it, but I may still do it. I don't know. It's an experiment. And that's part of it too, is I kind of like just seeing what happens. It's the shock piece. It's like, what if I add these two things together and I stay? Is there an explosion? That's not always the most responsible thing to do (laughs) or the correct or appropriate thing to do. So it's still an open question for me. And that's the beauty, right? That is the beauty of experimenting. The experiment never ends. You're living your design, which doesn't mean you got there. You're living it every day, making different decisions. No two situations are the same. And we can go back and we can speculate that, like I've already in this conversation said, if I could go back and reparent in different ways with the knowledge, I quite likely would. But I can't. And it really doesn't matter because it was perfect. What I see in the world, the truth is, is everyone is doing their best. Every part of me has that awareness because everyone is everywhere. Everyone is doing their best. So you did your best in that situation. I did my best with my children. We're sitting here right now doing our best. And five years from now, we might listen to this podcast and go, oh, hell, what was that about? (laughs) Yeah, If we're going to make assumptions, it's a pretty good assumption as a default to make to ourselves, to our parents, to the other people in our life and say they were probably doing their best. Yes. I was doing my best at that time. 
or I did the only thing I could do in that situation. It's That's actually right. the thing that happened. So right. that was the thing that happened. And so if we don't know, we have to default to, well, let's just go ahead and extend some measure of goodwill. If that's Crazy. the world you want to live in, that seems like a preferred world for exactly. me to live in. I don't think people need any more ways to punish themselves with how bad they are and how fucked up I agree. they are. I don't think people really need any more no. of that. Unless they're asking, unless someone's showing up and say, how am I fucking up? Would you please help me to see why am I screwing this up so badly? What am I doing wrong? I think people need a lot more recognition. Exactly. People need a lot more acknowledgement of just what you said, Melissa, that especially the fact that most of us don't have an ego. There may be some cases I could see where a defined ego might say, yeah, I was doing my best at the time, but I could do better. But for most of us, yeah, I think what we need Mm -hmm. more is acknowledgement, recognition, encouragement, and like some strength to, if it got fucked up, brush Mm -hmm. yourself off and get back in there. It's another day, another day of life. And in that conversation with my friend, we were just really diving into the invitation, waiting for the invitation, and then the recognition piece and this like far away look. And he said, you know, that's really rare, isn't it? To really be recognized. And when he said that, Like my body just vibrated. And I'm like, hell yes, it's rare when my body does that. (laughs) It's the truth for me. You know, like I just heard the truth because that is the truth. And it's also deeply sad. I say it's sad, but then I also think of when you get upgraded to first class or you get this really nice hotel, it's so great because it doesn't happen very often. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I physically feel like when I'm like really recognized. (gasps) It's glory. (laughs) it's been such a pleasure melissa we just really value you and love Mm -hmm. you as being and as a friend and a colleague and thank you for joining us today and sharing your experience likewise it really was a ton of fun and even a little nervousness at the beginning you guys just magical i mean i keep using that word but you are so genuine and so open and just easy to be with it's just fun I really love you both. So thank you for inviting me. I feel recognized. See? (laughs) (laughs) Yay. Thank you for listening to the Human Design Collective podcast. If you enjoy the show, please review us and share. You can find us at humandesigncollective.com and explore our course and workshop offerings at courses.humandesigncollective.com. Music for the Human Design Collective podcast is courtesy of Meg Ruby and Anders Parker. For more information, see the show notes, and please stay tuned for upcoming episodes on the same channel.